Everybody loves a good comeback story. This couldn't be more clear than if you were watching the Vikings game this past Sunday. It was perhaps the craziest game I have ever seen in my life, and I've watched many football games. The Vikings somehow came back in the fourth quarter to eventually win in overtime when all hope seemed lost over and over and over again. And as you can imagine, as they won that game, which everyone thought they would lose, everyone went crazy, including myself. I accidentally woke my wife up from her nap. I was going that crazy and apologized to her afterwards for that. But in watching this game, there was something special about it. There was something glorious and awesome that was captured in this come-from-behind win. The greater the comeback and the more unlikely it is, the more glorious and sweet that victory becomes. And it's something that we all get and feel when it happens to us. We love when against all odds, our team wins or we win. We love stories about how a down and outer who has everything going against him somehow comes back to win in life while their enemies lay there in defeat. We all love comeback stories because they are stories that we plug our lives into. They give us hope that we too can come back from insurmountable odds that are stacked against us in life. Well, as we come back to the book of Zechariah, the Israelites desperately need this hope. They need the hope of recovery, the hope of coming back. For they have the odds stacked against them, and their situation looks bleak. Their city lies in ruin. Their temple dismantled completely, and the people are discouraged beyond measure. But despite all of this, God tells them that they will come back from this. They will win in the end, and they will fully recover. Because God is on their side. He is working. So as we look at our text this morning, then, we find that God's people, no matter how horrible your situation might be today, will recover and come back as God repays and avenges his people as he restores and secures his people, and as he regathers and returns to them. So we come back to Zechariah then. We remember that he is in the middle of eight apocalyptic visions. And last week we ended by God gloriously returning to his people in mercy. He comforts them with the promise that the city will be rebuilt the temple constructed, and they will again prosper and experience the favor of God. They will recover. They will come back from the desolation that was brought upon their heads for their sin. However, what was not addressed were Israel's enemies. We recall that God was fiercely angry with the nations that oppressed his people because they went above and beyond the destruction they were supposed to do. And so because of this, God is not going to ignore the wrong that these enemies of Israel did, but he's going to do something about it, as revealed in vision two. What is he going to do? He is going to repay and avenge Israel 
of the injustice that happened to them. So as we look at our text here in verse 18, Zechariah looks up and he sees four horns. And immediately he asks the angel, what are these horns? What do they mean? And in response, the angel explains that these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And with this explanation, then we come to understand that these horns symbolize the enemies of God who have oppressed them for many years. This would certainly include Babylon and Assyria and perhaps many other nations. And in representing these enemy nations as horns, it symbolizes their great strength and authority that these nations carried. The horn came to take on this meaning as the horns on a bull were dangerous and powerful. And so it's in this way that God's enemies were scary, threatening, and powerful, just like a raging bull. It was a raging bull that rampaged right through God's people, scattering them abroad. But then God shows Zechariah something else here as well. And it's here that he sees four craftsmen who began to approach these horns. What are they coming to do, Zechariah asks. The angel answers, saying that they are going to cut off these horns because they brought great shame and harm to God's people. They raised their horns against the wrong people, and so now they will pay the price. So it will be these craftsmen with their specialized tools that would dehorn the cattle, so to speak. They would take away the authority and power of these nations that oppressed God's people. And so what this vision portrays then is a powerful picture of God sovereignly avenging his people of their enemies. He will not overlook the injustices that have occurred to them, but he will certainly repay the evil that they did to his people. This truth would provide immeasurable comfort to the people of Israel. For they suffer truly horrific things that many of us in this room could not even begin to imagine. Many of them lost homes, possessions, and they suffered unjust, cruel treatments. They lost the lives of loved ones unjustly. Many of them were killed and brutally tortured in terrifying ways. The injustices they faced, unthinkable but it's not as if God was blind for he saw what his people were going through. And it's not as if he would let them get off the hook for what they did to his people. Instead, he would certainly make sure that perfect justice would happen to these enemy nations. And so knowledge that God will one day avenge every wrong thing that his people face does at least two things for us here this morning. First, it frees us from a vengeful attitude toward others who wrong us, and it gives us peace. As Paul will say in Romans 12, 19, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Often our desire is when we are hurt or when we are wronged by others is to seek revenge, to seek vengeance 
We want to get even with the person who hurt us. We want them to hurt just as much as we do. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to level the playing field. And so vengeance is intensely personal. And it often leads God's people to commit sins just to get even with our perpetrator. So our God tells us here, leave it to him to take vengeance in these moments. He will execute perfect justice. He will give what our perpetrators deserve. So instead of retaliating sinfully or giving in to feelings of anger, hate, and bitterness, we must release every wrong done to us to God. For he will make sure all is accounted for. It's in this way then, as we give it to God, and know that he will make all things right, that we find freedom and peace. We lay down our bitterness and our anger, and we find comfort in knowing that our God knows, and he will repay. So knowledge of God as our avenger then frees us from a spirit of anger and bitterness. But then it also calibrates us not to be overly passive or overly violent in our pursuit of truth and justice. While we don't seek vengeance, we do, as God's people, seek truth and justice. And there is definitely a difference in the spirit of the matter. Vengeance is typically for personal satisfaction. It's very much about me, myself, and I, while justice is really truly a matter of what is honoring to God, what is glorifying to him. Vengeance is inwardly focused on satisfying my anger and my wrath, while true justice is focused on the glory of God and what is right in his eyes. A vengeful spirit leaves no possibility for reconciliation, while those seeking God's justice allows the possibility of repentance and reconciliation at the cross. So knowledge of God going to repay our enemies allows us to take the personal out of it, and it helps us to pursue true justice in a God-honoring, God-centered way. I think the Apostle Paul models this for us very well when he is treated unjustly. If you recall, Paul is a Roman citizen in Acts 16. And what did they do? They publicly beat him without a trial. This was completely unjust. So does Paul go quietly when they try to release him? Is he like, well, I guess I'll just take my beating and won't say anything because God will avenge me. He doesn't do that. He's not completely passive here. On the other hand, does Paul demand repayment for what they did to him? Does he demand that they are beat unjustly just as he himself was? He doesn't do that either here. So Paul doesn't passively do nothing, but at the same time, nor does he react with harshness or vengeance. What Paul instead does here is confront them about the injustice that they did to him. He doesn't ignore their sin, but with God's interest at heart, he calls them to own their mistake and to execute true justice and righteousness before God himself. And so must we as God's people. When we are wronged, even as Paul was, 
we can go about it appropriately, without a personal agenda, but with God's agenda at heart. We can pursue justice with humility, knowing that we ourselves are deserving of God's judgment apart from Christ. And so we pursue justice, hoping and praying for our persecutors to turn to Christ. For as scripture tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Almighty, who can throw both flesh and soul into hell. And after pursuing justice for many of us here, and not being able to get it, we can know, even with the martyrs in Revelation 6:11, that there is truly coming a day when God will avenge every wrong that does not receive justice in this lifetime. So in this second vision, then, we see that God will repay. He will repay those who hurt his people. This brings us then to the third vision, and it's in this vision that we see God both restoring and securing his people. Third vision opens up with a man surveying the land. And when Zechariah asks, what are you doing? The man responds by saying that he's taking measurements with the purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's what he's doing here. Now we remember God promised to restore Jerusalem in the first vision. So it only makes sense that now he is taking measurements, right? But immediately after this, there are then two angels that we see. And one of the angels says to the other, quick, go to this man who's surveying the land and tell him Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and animals in it. I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory there within it. Walls in the ancient day were a good thing. They protected you from enemies and dangerous people. But at the same time, walls stopped the size a city could grow. And so it's both of these realities that this vision addresses. Based on this vision, we are to understand that one day, Jerusalem would be restored so fully with so many people and so many animals and so prosperous that the walls wouldn't be able to handle it. The city would be bursting at the seams, so to speak. So God would restore his people in such an immeasurable way that the walls would interfere with the prosperity that he brings them. But as we already mentioned, not having any walls is a problem. Because without walls, there is no protection from the enemies around you. But this is where God steps in again. I will be a wall of fire to my people. I will protect them and secure them. I will be their glory within. And seeing this imagery, it brings up several pictures in the Bible that the Israelites would have been familiar with. It first brings to mind the Exodus, where God was a pillar of fire for his people that guided them by night and provided them light by day. It also brings to memory when he was literally a wall between them and the Egyptians when they were hot on their trail at the Red Sea. He protected them and allowed the walls of the sea to come crumbling down on the Egyptian army that tried to follow them. And so this imagery brings to mind how God has already acted in history to be a wall for his people. 
And he's saying he will do this again for them, even as they rebuild Jerusalem and the walls and the city. Now we may wonder here, was this vision ever fulfilled? After all, the Jews would never, ever, ever see this kind of prosperity in their lands. And they would go on to later rebuild the walls of Jerusalem 70 years or so down the road with Nehemiah. So did the Israelites disobey God in rebuilding the walls or fail to trust God or or something like that? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point that God is trying to make here. As one theologian puts it, this vision is meant to point out an invisible spiritual reality into our ultimate future, regardless of our outward circumstances. So we are not to take away that God, so what we are to take away is that God is at work restoring us beyond all that we could ever imagine or think. And he is protecting us like a wall of fire, though we cannot see it. We can know this and find hope and comfort in it. For God is working a comeback for his people. So know this morning, if you are feeling hopeless, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling the weight of your sin, even as Israel did here, know that God is working to restore you too. God is working to restore you no matter how many times you may have failed him today or this past week. No matter how discouraged you may be due to your circumstances, he is working a comeback for his glory. And just as God never gave up on his people here, so he will never give up on you either. He will restore everything you have lost in this life and more, and he is presently doing this today through Jesus Christ. So if you've returned to God by repenting of your sins and trusted in Christ's perfect work, know that God is restoring you here today in the already and the not yet. All the pains and sufferings that you are going through will one day be vanquished completely at Christ's second return. And all the tears experienced in this life will be wiped away completely. Everything you've lost painfully here on earth will be restored to you beyond measure. And as Revelation tells us, new bodies will be given with no sickness, no illness, no hurt, no pain, no struggling with sin. And we will be united with lost loved ones whom we've lost in this life. And the greatest treasure of all, we will ultimately be with Jesus, who is our creator, our sustainer, and the one we must long for completely. So know then that God is working to restore you completely. He's been doing this since the beginning for his people, and he's doing it today. But not only is he working to restore you, he is also working to secure you too. Even as God would be a wall of fire around the city of Jerusalem, so he is for us today. For just as a child finds security and protection from his father or mother who is right beside him, so God's presence with us provides the same security to us. Because we know that our God is greater and bigger than anything life can throw at us. He is strong and good, kind and compassionate, loving and merciful. And so because that God is with us and he is sovereign over all, 
we know that no matter what happens to us in this lifetime, God will make all things right in the end. And he's doing that today. So in knowledge of this truth, we have security and protection even when unexpected things happen to us. We can say with the Psalm 118, 6 and 7, that the Lord is for me. He's for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. And again with Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. As Zechariah 2 puts it for us, he is a wall a fire around us. He's there for each of us. And so because God is our security, we as his people must take care then to find our security in God above all. For if we look to anything else in life, we will be like the man who built his house on the sand. Our lives will be shaky and uncertain if our life is built on the sands of money, popularity, the approval of man, a job, our health, or our performance. For all these things can be taken away. But what can't be taken away from us is the eternal security and protection that our God offers to us in Christ. So we find our rest and security in God by bringing to mind who he is, what he's done, and what he is doing over and over and over again. We must remember Jesus above all, for he would be harmed in our place to protect us. He would sacrifice his life to save our own. He would be abandoned and forsaken so that we would be accepted and received. And so it's these truths that protect us and secure us above all. So let us memorize and meditate deeply on these promises which are for you. So in the first part of this vision, then God's people will will recover and they will make a comeback as God restores them and secures them. But then he will also do this as he regathers his people and returns to them. We come then to the final part of this vision where there is a bit of a transition in our text. Zechariah moves then from speaking to the Israelites in Jerusalem to the Jews who remain scattered abroad and specifically those who were still in Babylon. So Zechariah speaks to the exiled Israelites who haven't returned yet to the promised land, and he says to them, flee the land of the north, which is in reference to Babylon, and all the pagan nations across the world. Flee the north. The north was a symbol of evil powers, because whenever Jerusalem was invaded, it was often invaded from the north. And so God's people, who were still in exile, are now called to flee these pagan nations and to return to Jerusalem. Return because God is working. He's regathering his people. And so because God is restoring and securing his people, because he's judging the evil pagan nations for their crime, return home. Don't remain in exile, but come back to the promised land. Come back to Yahweh. Now, the decision to return home for these Israelites would not have been easy at all. 
Because after all, the people of God were just barely hanging on by a thread. It seemed that they still had so many things stacked against them. They had enemies who hated them, people who didn't want a Jewish nation to ever exist, and the rebuilding efforts had gone nowhere at all up to this point. So to return to the promised land seemed like a terrible choice and a terrible family decision. But Zechariah, knowing this, gives another word of encouragement to them. He says, in pursuit of his glory, God is working against the nations that plundered Israel. He is working against them because whoever touches Israel touches the pupil of God's eye. Which is just another way of saying that in touching Israel, they touched the apple of his eye. They touched what was most precious to God. And so despite Israel's numerous failings, God still loves them. He treasures them. And he will respond to the injustices that they have experienced. As our text tells us in verse 9, God will respond by raising his hand against their enemies. He will not let his people continue to be mistreated, but he will act. In fact, the destruction of the enemies of God would be so bad that the slaves who once served will be the ones who plunder them completely. And when this happens, they will know that the words of Zechariah spoke were all true. What is then said here is reminiscence of Israel when they served as Egypt's slaves. If we recall back to when Egypt, uh, when Israel was in exile under Egypt, uh, they cried out to God, and God delivered them. And in delivering them, they plundered Egypt completely. The slaves plundered their masters, and Egypt was left in utter ruin when they opposed Yahweh. And so Zechariah is saying here that something like this will happen again to God's enemies. He will bring about a great unexpected reversal in his people's favor. And so because of all of this, because you are the apple of God's eyes, because he is judging pagan nations and he's restoring you, return home to me is the call. Return home to God instead of serving and worshiping the pagan gods of foreign lands. Return home to God despite the fears and anxieties you might have in doing so. Return home to God, embrace who you are truly as God's special people. Return home to God and await your king. So the calling is really the same for us today in so many ways. For just as the exiled Israelites were called not to make the pagan lands their home, but to return to the promised land, so we must do the same. For as Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 tells us, just as our ancestors were exiles and sojourners, making their way to the promised land where God dwelt, so we too are exiles and sojourners here on earth, making our way back to our true homeland, where God himself dwells. A place where he has prepared a city for us. And so in response to this, as 1 Peter 2.11 exhorts us, in light of this truth, I urge you as strangers and exiles, abstain from the sinful desires 
that wage war against the soul. In other words, don't set your heart in this world or the things of earth. For this world is not our home. We are exiles and sojourners just passing through. And so because of this, we as God's people must make sure not to make our hearts a home in earth. For if our heart's home is in the things of earth and what it offers us, then we will not long for Jesus as we should. But if our hearts are properly set on Jesus, then we will rightly be waiting his return as his people. For our home, our truest home, is where Christ is if we indeed belong to him. So it's in these final verses then that point us to where all our hearts should long for most. We should long for God's return to be with his people and to make his home among us completely. And as verse 10 opens up, God calls for his people to shout for joy and to be glad and happy about this reality. Shout for joy, be glad, be happy, because God is returning to dwell with his people. He is returning to set up his eternal home with us. And it will be on that day Many nations will join themselves to the Lord and become my people. I will dwell among you, and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. The Lord will take possession of Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and he will once again choose Jerusalem. So in this final part of the vision, the Lord is coming. He's coming to dwell with his people. And when he does all the nations will be drawn to him at this time. And so God is doing this today. God has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, all the Gentile nations, including each and every one of us here this morning, are being drawn to God. And so from all the ends of the earth, we see people of all tribes and nations flocking to King Jesus as the gospel is proclaimed and spread. And in this, God is taking possession of his people who were once lost and astray all across the lands. He is showing them kindness and favor as they find themselves in the fold of God. And so from the book of Zechariah, we find that God's plan for redeeming the Gentile nations wasn't a plan B option. But it was his intention all along to redeem that which belonged to God by coming himself. And it spells it out here in the text. So this is why we rejoice and why we sing every Sunday and gather as God's people. Because our God is coming to redeem all that is lost and broken, not only in this world, but in our lives And so because he is coming again, we anticipate it with our hearts set on Jesus, whom we find our eternal rest in our home. So because our God is coming to us, because he is coming to dwell and make his home among us, this vision ends with a call. Let all humanity be silent 
before the Lord. For from his holy dwelling, he has roused himself. In these closing words of the vision, then, he calls for the listener to quiet their souls, quiet your anxious hearts in light of what God is doing. Watch what he will do. Stand in awe of how great he is and place your hope and your trust in him. So with reverence, let us do this before him now and still our stoles before the Almighty, for he is at work for us, making our comeback. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to still our souls before you. May we know that you are in control of all things. You have a plan since the beginning of the time, and it will work out for our good and your glory. So when we are anxious, when our hearts are not at rest, when we are worried about all the turmoil we are going through, may we remember who you are. For you are a good, loving, gracious God. You love us. You are a wall of fire around us. And you are restoring us to be all that we should be as you bring us to the promised land, which is with you. So help us as your people to long for Christ above all, to place our hearts' affections on Jesus and his return, where when you return, you will make all wrong things right. And we will find our hearts filled to the full. So Lord, help us to look to this day. We pray this in Christ's name.